Okay, uh, good afternoon. Nice to see you all. I um, hope you've had a good bank holiday, um, or so far. Uh, as you may know, we're kind of long way through a series. Our summer series has been looking at the book of Psalms, and this is, I think, the ninth message in the series. Uh, my name is Jeff, I'm going to be bringing this message and looking at Psalm 139 this evening. It's quite interesting preaching the ninth message in a series. Um, I think the last few messages last few series we've done have been quite near the beginning, which is nice because it means that when you're kind of doing your preamble and your introduction, anything you say is probably fairly fresh because you're the first person to say it. But by the ninth, I kind of assume a lot of stuff's been said. Um, so I may be covering old ground, but maybe stuff that's good to hear again. Um, and if you've missed any of the messages, if you've been away or whatever, or serving, do listen to them online. All the messages are online and you can listen to them, you can watch them and catch up on what you've missed, because it's been a really good series. So we're looking this evening at Psalm 139. When I think of the Psalms, there's kind of two quite distinct pictures that I kind of get in my mind and think of quite quickly. Um, And the first of those is of David. David from the Bible, David and Goliath, later King David. Um, But before all that, David, I've got this picture of him as a young boy looking after the sheep, sitting in a field, kind of looks more like the Yorkshire Dales than anywhere in Israel, but, you know, that's just my mind. Grew up in Leeds, so Yorkshire Dales, there's David, sheep all around him, kind of maybe with a bit of a harp or portable harp, um, and, you know, singing these psalms. And obviously some of that comes from the story and what we know of David from the Bible. Um, David wrote many of the psalms, over half the psalms are probably um, written by David. But it also comes from this tape we used to listen to, as a family in the car. So in days gone by before everyone had their own gadgets and you just plug into it and listen to your own thing. You know, back in my day, there were three brothers and we all, had to, we all got turns about whose turn it was to listen to the tape and the tape was then put in the car and we got to choose and there were many arguments over whose turn it was and how long someone's tape was compared to everyone else's. And I always used to put on classical music because it really annoyed my two brothers because they hated it. Um, and whatever discrepancies we had between the three of us, um, you know, we, we all agreed that the worst point in the journey was when we got to just past seven o'clock and my parents would turn off the tape and we'd all have to listen to the archers for 15 minutes that felt like two hours. So, you know, that, that was kind of, it was much better in those days, much more communal car experience, but, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's great now. But, the, you know, the tape, one of them that we had was called Salty, the singing songbook. Anyone know Salty? Yes, a few of you. There you go. And this is spelled P.S. Salty, as in Psalms, so it's kind of linked to the Psalms, and Salty is an American thing, I think, um, and it was this big blue singing songbook, so this character that sang and spoke and cried quite a lot, he was quite emotional, I think, it seems to remember, a bit, a bit emotionally fragile, and um, there was this group of children that came to comfort him because he was crying, and then they ended up going kind of back in time and in this time machine and looking at the kind of development of the history of worship. It was a fascinating tape. So we, we used to love this tape, Salty and the Singing Songbook. Um, I think even back then we listened to it semi-ironically, but the very first trip they did when they went back in history to look at the history of worship was to visit David on this hillside surrounded by sheep. Um, so that's, that's kind of quite a clear kind of image from an early age that I've got in my mind. Um, and David is such a key figure in the Psalms. And when you read the Psalms, particularly the Psalms by David, there's something incredibly personal about many of his psalms. We don't know when all of them were written, but some of them you can really trace back to particular points in his life. So, you know, obviously a famous psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. Well, that goes back to his experience 
as a shepherd. Later on in his life when he'd defeated Goliath, but he was being kind of chased by Saul and Saul's men. And he was hiding. And there's many Psalms that address directly the fact that he's being chased by his enemies and that he's concerned and very apprehensive for his life and for his safety because these men are after him. And then later on you get Psalm 51 that Josh talked about a few weeks ago um, where he's sinned with Bathsheba. He's been the king. He's had um, this adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. And then he's confronted by the prophet Samuel who says, what you've done is a terrible thing. And his repentance, part of his repentance, is this outpouring in Psalm 51. So you can see these Psalms very personally tying into his life and his story. And they are really personal. They read in a really real way. They're not kind of neat formal, kind of polite prayers. They're honest. There's a real depth of despair to some of them, but then heights of joy. Sometimes within a few verses, he goes from one extreme to the other. You know, there's nothing restrained about them at all. They're honest, they're passionate, they're raw. And you see this, and often, you know, we're encouraged to pray in this way. One of the things I love about the Psalms is they are uh, a reflection in the sense of what it is like to have a prayer relationship with God. God doesn't want us just to recite formal prayers and be polite. He wants us to be honest. He wants us to be real with him. And I've been to seminars about prayer or read books about prayer where they would use these different psalms and say, look at David, we should be the same. David does it certainly to want to push the envelope a bit. So some of these, some of these psalms really go for it. So for example, one of the ones where he's being chased by enemies um, and another one where he's got these, these, these unjust rulers and he's un- addressing these unjust rulers and this is what he says to them in Psalm 58 he says break the teeth in their mouths O God that's charming Lord tear out the fangs of those lions let them vanish like water that flows away when they draw the bow let their arrows fall short may they be like the slug that melts away as it moves along like a stillborn child that never sees the sun So the imagery here is really strong and there's something very violent about his kind of response to these unjust rulers. Look at the language it uses, talking about them being being like slugs melting in the midday sun as they're moving along. Or break the teeth in their mouths, the violence of that statement. Or let their arrows fall short. You know, I've done archery, it's so embarrassing when you try to fire it and it just goes down in the ground in front of everybody like, it's just terrible. You know, it's probably worse than having your teeth broken, I don't know. Perhaps not, but this, this idea, certainly there's parts of this psalm and others that are so extreme and so violent. So we, we look at these and think, well, I've never, I've never heard a church prayer workshop encouraging me to pray like that. But they are real emotions that David experienced and felt. The second picture I've got the psalms is very, very different. And it's of these choirs singing them as part of their formal services. So particularly in the Anglican tradition, they will sing psalms in every service. In Cambridge, we are so fortunate that we have some of the very finest choirs in the world in this city. And you can go any day during term time and listen to them sing for free by going to one of the services. If you've never been to a service in King's College Chapel or um, St. John's Chapel or somewhere like that, I would really encourage you to go one time. It's completely different from this, but that's you know, a great thing to do to do something completely different. And it's an amazing experience, an amazing building, fantastic choir. And what they do is they sing one psalm as part of their kind of service every day. And over the year, they cover, or over a few years, they cover all the psalms. So they go through in order. They don't just choose, you know, let's do the Lord's my shepherd again. You know, they go around and do them all, including some of the difficult ones. But 
the way they sing them is quite a formal structure. So there's a very simple tune they sing them to and it's set in four-part harmony and then the tune changes depending on how many syllables you have to cram in the line. So if it's a very long line and you've got to get lots of syllables, you sing it quite quickly and repeat the same note over and over again and then you change it if it's just a short line. And it's, there's quite a skill to it. I've, I've done it and it's quite difficult. And if it's done kind of badly or even mediocrely, if that's a word, um, it sounds a real mess. But if you get an amazing choir to it, it just sounds fantastic. So this image of psalms being used of collective worship or communal worship, a community coming together and singing. And obviously, King's College didn't invent that. The psalms go right back. And even the psalms themselves, when they were written, some of them were clearly written for that purpose. So from the very beginning, the psalms were intended to be something that was sung collectively, that was sung by a group. So for example, if you look at something like Psalm 136, um, and every other line, this is called a response psalm, because every other line is the same. So every other line is, his love endures forever. Okay? So what happens is someone, and that'll be me, says one line and everybody else responds, his love endures forever. So if we just try it, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. And it goes on like that for about 40 verses. So it's, you know, it's a, and that's a kind of, clearly the structure of it was designed to be done communally. Possibly with even more enthusiasm than we did then. But, you know, that's, that, that's the structure of the psalm and the way it's been put together. Paul, when he writes to the Ephesians in the New Testament, he says this, Do not get drunk on wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. So he's saying to the early church meeting in Ephesus, sing these psalms, sing them to each other. Also your own songs, but sing these psalms to each other. So the psalms had this collective kind of worship experience from the very beginning. In fact, the word psalms comes from a musical instrument. The Psalter was a stringed instrument and it was used back when they were being written. That was the stringed instrument used to accompany the singing. And that's how they became the psalms. Okay, and they are the basis for our modern day worship. So many of our worship songs have bits of the psalms used in them and they kind of quote the psalms or they refer to the psalms or they've got a very similar mode of expression to the psalms. So I had a go at writing one myself, a kind of modern day style worship song um, called Break the Teeth in Their Mouth, O Lord. It goes like this. Break the teeth in your mouth, O Lord, oh yeah. Let them melt like the slug in the midday sun. It's really beautiful. And, you know, thank you. I'd, re I'd really love the worship team to take this up, you know, maybe sing it at the end. But it's, you know, th there's so many of these kind of, there's so many psalms that just don't work in that setting and so many that just work so naturally. And again, that's one of the interesting things about the psalms. They are not all the same. There's so many different types. Some clearly designed for collective worship. Some clearly not personal, honest prayers. What I've put in your notes is this. The Psalms are both intensely personal and expansively universal. There's something about them that speaks to the individual, but there's also something about them that speaks to the crowd and to the world around us. And that's not just true of the kind of form and the kind of mode of, kind of singing or engaging with the Psalms. It's also true of the theology of the Psalms. The theology is the ideas, they, you know, what they teach us and what they tell us about who God is. What they teach us and tell us about who we are in relation to God and the world around us. 
that theology of the Psalms is both personal, it both speaks to me as an individual, but it is also expansively universal. It speaks not just to me as an individual, but every individual has ever walked this earth. That's what the Psalms have to talk about. And because of the, the dual nature of these Psalms, speaking to me, but speaking to the world, being both very, very personal and very, very public, actually sometimes the theology, the ideas behind them are quite complicated or quite complicated to unpick and to understand and to apply appropriately. And that's actually true for the whole Bible. You know, the Bible teaches our theology, our ideas about God and our thinking about God all comes and is drawn from the Bible. But the Bible doesn't always make it simple. The Bible isn't just a theology textbook. It's not chapter one, this is about God. Chapter two, this is about creation. Chapter three, this is about humans. Chapter four, it's not organized like that. It's a, it's a whole mosaic of different ideas and different writings by different people at different times with different concerns. So you've got letters in there, you've got history accounts, you've got um, stories, you've got rules and regulations written down for particular communities. And then in there, you've got these songs in the middle, right in the center of the Bible. So what do these songs teach us? How do we approach them? And we have to understand what the ideas behind them are, but also look and see how they connect with other passages of Scripture. And sometimes, if we read them in the wrong way, they can set us down the wrong track. Probably the most um, clear example of this historically was the Psalm 104, which is an amazing psalm, again, looking at creation and talking about God as creator, and talking about the wonders of the creation he's made. And then in verse 5 it says this, He has set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. And it's this statement about, I guess, the earth in the center of God's purposes, and I guess humanity in the center of his creation. But the problem was that people didn't read this just as a statement, a theological statement about God and how he related to those of us on earth, they saw it as almost like a scientific principle. So when, in the, um, you know, when the likes of Copernicus and Galileo came along and said, actually, we've done these amazing observations and we can prove that it's not the um, sun moving around the earth, but the sun is actually in the middle and it's the earth that's moving around the sun, rather than them saying, oh, that's, that's interesting, yeah, fancy that. What they said was, that's wrong. The Bible makes it really clear. The earth is fixed. It can't be moved. Your observations are wrong. In fact, they're not just wrong. They're heretical. They're against the Bible. The teaching is sinful. And Galileo was arrested and was threatened with torture and execution if he didn't recant or take back these statements that he'd made about the earth. So what they'd done wrong is they'd read these Psalms, but they'd read them rather as poetry and as something expressive. They'd read them as scientific facts. And that's not the way they're intended to be read. So as we look at the psalm this evening, we've got to look at it and read it as it was intended to be read, as close as we can. And that's always the challenge of coming to the Bible. So we're going to look at Psalm 139. And this is one of the most intensely personal psalms out of the whole collection of 150. And I guess the questions we're going to be asking, well, what does it say about me and my relationship with God. But I want us to expand it from just what does it say about me and my relationship to what does it say about the world around us? What does it say about the me's all across this planet? So the first point I want to make is this. God created us. Um, you know, the, the creation is talked about in various different parts of the Bible, sometimes quite briefly. Obviously, the main text talking about creation is right at the beginning of the Bible. You've got two 
kind of slightly different accounts that come in the first three chapters of Genesis, the creation of the world um, and everything in it. But after that, after that passage in Genesis, probably the passage in the Bible that talks most specifically about creation are different passages in the Psalms. And this one in Psalm 139 is particularly um, important. And I'm going to start reading from verse 13. And this is what it says. You, um, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of, your, um, in the, depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And this is an amazing picture of creation. You see, there are different views about creation in the world. Some people believe that the creation of the universe happened and there was no intervention at all from any kind of God or supreme being. It just happened as a result of different processes over millions and billions of years. And then there are those people that believe that there was a God involved at the very beginning, setting everything in motion. And once everything was set in motion, it was then kind of left and it ran its own course and went its own way. But the, the psalmist here is portraying God as someone who is intimately involved in creation, not just at the beginning, but ongoing. That God is involved in the creation of each and every individual. You know, Psalm 139 says that before I was born, when I was just a, a small collection of cells, no connection with anyone other than the physical connection with my, my mother, before all of that, that God was already invested in my life and interested in my life and involved in my life. That my soul was somehow already connected with God. Now, the Psalms don't offer a robust theology that answers lots of complicated questions that come with that. You know, if God was involved in each and every creation, why are some babies, you know, born and they don't survive? Or some babies are born with, you know, terrible kind of physical um, afflictions and things. Why, why does that happen? But, you know, the psalm doesn't go on to address that. In this instance, that's not the psalmist's kind of concern to answer that question. He's looking to answer and express his understanding of his importance to God. And he's not writing his importance to God as the king of Israel. He's just writing his importance to God. He recognizes his importance in the purposes of God, just as David, in the same way that we are important to God, each and every one of us. Often families joke about one of the children, usually the youngest one, being a mistake. I don't know if you're the youngest child and, you know, you sometimes get families. Ours is a bit like this where you kind of get a class, you know, you can get two or three older siblings that are all born together and the parents kind of thought, well, let's get it all, you know, all done out, you know, out of the way altogether, go through that kind of tough period bringing up children and then, you know, we'll kind of move on with the rest of our lives and then, you know, there's this gap of 10 years and then this other child turns up. And it's like, oh, right, well, we weren't expecting that to happen, but okay, we'll, we'll go with it. So there are families that are a bit like that. And, you know, the, the, the youngest child is lovingly referred to as a, as a mistake. You know, it was kind of a bit of a joke in my family. Maybe you are lovingly referred to as a mistake and maybe it's hurt you and you would like some counselling. If so, there's a team at the end that would love to pray with you. But, you know, there's, sometimes people have that kind of feeling or sometimes, you know, there really was a mistake and, you know, a couple have a child much earlier than they were planning in circumstances that were less than ideal. 
and they bring the child into the world and they love it and they bring it up. And, you know, there's different situations and ways that children can be born. Some positive, some not so positive. I've noticed that whenever you see a pregnancy test in a TV drama, it is always bad news. If the person wants to have a child, it's telling them they're not going to have the child. But if they, you know, if they really don't want a child, the pregnancy test is always going to tell them, oh dear, you're pregnant. So, the, you know, these, these things happen. But the truth is this, a bigger truth, is that actually in God's sight, there is no mistake. You know, your parents might not have planned the exact timing of your kind of conception and birth, but God did. God intended it. God meant you to be born. Your life isn't an accident or an irrelevance. Each and every one of us was intended by God. And that's an important thing for us to understand and appreciate, that we were all intended by God. We are important to God. And we need to broaden that statement as well and say, well, if that's true for me, if that's true for you, that is true for each and every person who walks this planet. You know, there are some people we find it hard to get on with. Well, guess what? They were born and intentioned by God. There are people who are rich who have everything, but there are people who are poor and live in abject poverty and difficulty all their life. But they were precious people born intentionally by God. Some people are super talented and bring a whole load of stuff to the table. Other people don't really seem to have much to offer. But they were important and intentioned by God. People who are happy, people who are sad, people who are good and positive, people who are negative, people who do terrible things, people who do wonderful things. All of them intended by God. God created us. The second point I want to make is this. God accepts us. And actually, I want to break this point down really into two kind of sub-points. The first one being God knows us, and then secondly, God accepts us. And actually, that, that part of God knowing us is important, because if God just accepts us without knowing anything about us, it's a bit meaningless. You know, it's like if someone goes along and they, they just kind of go to a house, and they, you know, one of these house sales, and they say, well, I'll just buy everything. I'll buy it. It's a job lot, and then I'll go through it later. They, you know, they buy it and they look through it. And well, you know, there'll be some stuff there that's decent, a load of junk I'll just chuck. But you know, I don't know what I'm getting, but I'll accept it anyway and take it. You know, that's not God's attitude. God has to know us because he knows what he's accepting. He's seen us, he knows us, and then he accepts us. Without acceptance, knowledge simply means that God doesn't care. But this is what the passage says. This is going from the beginning of Psalm 139, verse 1. You have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. God knows each and every one of us. As a, gen, you know, as a generation, we have a funny relationship, really, with privacy. In some ways, we're much more private as a community. You know, in days gone by, communities lived much more out in the open together. You know, there'd be a village and, you know, people lived so close that if you were having an argument, the whole village would hear it. You know, there was no, you know, double glazing, shut doors. You know, we now live in these kind of houses shut away from each other. Often we don't know the people who live just around all around us, we're kind of cloistered away and often want to keep ourselves to ourselves. 
And then you get things like Facebook, where people seem quite open and not that concerned about privacy. And there's, there's a bit of a mixture on Facebook. I don't know if you're a Facebook user. Obviously, many people will be. Um, a lot of people have a very crafted image on Facebook. Okay? You know, and that can be um, a physical image. And some people kind of casually throw up a new photo. Here's a new profile picture. Oh, just a little photo I took. And it's you know, a picture of them looking absolutely stunning. Hair looking wonderful. The light looking just right. And get from their best side wearing the new whatever. And, you know, it, it's kind of casually thrown up. Oh, there's just a little photo of me. You know, they spent an hour looking at 20 almost identical photos trying to choose the very best one. So the one they put up is just right. Other people have a similar crafting that goes on with their kind of persona. The first one isn't me at all, but the second one is more. You know, you kind of want to throw out these kind of pithy, kind of witty observations about life, and you want them to feel kind of quite off the cuff and just, oh, this thing just kind of, I just thought about this and just casually threw it on Facebook. And the fact that you've actually spent, you know, several minutes trying to get the wording of it just right so it sounds absolutely casual and just made up on the spot. You know, there's a real art to that. So that the way you present yourself comes across how you want to and the, the things that you're interested in or the things that you want to communicate to people. And we kind of want to craft this persona and manage it quite carefully. You know, there are some people who don't seem to have those, those kind of inhibitions and, you know, there's the kind of oversharer on Facebook, the person that just puts something horrifically personal and seemingly intimate and just puts and you think there's hundreds of people who are reading this post and you've just said whatever and everyone else is going really well I'm not sure I wanted to know that and that's you know awkward but you know most of us are quite careful what we might put up um, and the truth is I think most of us have a concern about being truly known and being you know people knowing too much about us we want to kind of guard and you know just be protect how much people know us. There are circles of knowledge in our life, and that's not a bad thing. But, you know, there are people who know us really well, but actually most people just know us a little bit. They see us from afar, or there's a group around us who know us a little bit better. They see us in a few different settings, in a few different ways over a time. And then there are people who are real partners in our life, whether it's a marital partner, or whether it's a business partner, or just someone that you're really close with, and they know you seemingly inside out. And actually, the more you know somebody, usually the more of their flaws you can see. The, it's easier to see the things that are wrong with someone when you've worked that closely, you've lived that closely with them. And, you know, the truth is that God knows us, not just as well as the group or even that really tight-knit partner. God knows us even better than we know ourselves. One issue that many of us struggle with at different points is a lack of self-knowledge. There are things that we don't see about ourselves that perhaps other people do and that God certainly does. I mentioned earlier Psalm 51 and this situation where David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and it was only when Samuel the prophet came to him and confronted him and said, you've done a terrible thing, that he recognised this huge obvious thing that he'd done wrong in his life and confronted it. And actually, God knows us better than the group. He knows us better than the intimate friend. He knows us better even than we know ourselves. And yet, he accepts us. And that's a wonderful truth, that despite knowing everything about us, the good things, the bad things, the ugly things, despite knowing everything, he still accepts us. Possibly the greatest picture of acceptance in the Bible is the story of the prodigal son. And the son has gone away from the father and has lived the free life he wanted to lead, and he's ended up feeding pigs in a pigsty, having run out of money. 
And the father, it says, is looking out for the son, waiting for him to return. And when the son comes back, the father knows what he's done. He knows that he went off. He knows that he's wasted the money and squandered it. He can see from the state of him that he's led that kind of life. And he can probably still smell the pig manure on him. And he doesn't say to him, tell you what, you go and have a shower. You go and sort yourself out. When you're looking decent, we'll have a chat about things. He doesn't do that. He runs up to him and throws his arms around him and accepts him. Sees everything and yet still accepts him. And not only does God accept us, we can be secure in the knowledge that God knows what he is accepting. When I think back to the early relationship um, that I had with Joe, um, my wife, you know, when we first got together, those first few dates and things, you know, I really took great care in the way that I crafted my image. You know, I did, did my very best to become, you know, come across as interesting and you kind of alluringly enigmatic. It was, it was really hard work. And Joe, Joe might not have, I don't know why, come on. Yeah, you know, Joe might not have always been aware that that was what I was doing. You know, it might have not have been that obvious, but actually I wanted to present myself at my best. I was on my kind of very best behavior. You know, it's not gonna be successful on a first date if you kind of sit down and straight out, you're kind of telling your most kind of strident and kind of slightly offensive political opinions. That's probably not gonna help your situation if you start indulging in your most unpleasant personal habits on a first date. I hope some of you are writing this down. I know when, you, when you're a connect group, the first question is always, what was the thing that spoke to you most in this, this week's message? And perhaps for some of you, that's it. Okay, I shouldn't, shouldn't be you know, doing those things on my first date. But the, the point is this, that you, know, you can't keep that manicured image going over a long time. Then gradually, you get to know someone and the kind of the full extent of you know, who a person is gradually leaks out over... 18 years of marriage, and then you, know, you, you kind of come to recognize that. But God doesn't go through that process with us. There aren't things that are going to happen or that God is going to find out about that are going to put into question how he feels about you. He knows it already. He accepts you. He sees everything. And again, we can broaden this out. He accepts us, but that means by extension that he accepts everybody else that he accepts people in the world and the people sometimes that we struggle to accept, we can have confidence knowing that God accepts. Churches sometimes aren't the best places at being accepting. You know, people in different places, you know, in many different times, you know, have found it they haven't been accepted by a church. You know, judging isn't the same as accepting. If someone comes in our midst and they feel judged, rather than accepted, then we've got it seriously wrong. Tolerating someone isn't the same as accepting them, kind of looking at them and smiling and going, yeah, nice, great, lovely, you just sit down there and I'll just kind of smile and walk away. You know, that isn't the same as accepting someone. And actually, that's something we always need to work at. You know, Jesus was so accepting of everyone. We see that time and time again, that people who weren't accepted by anybody else came into his presence and felt accepted by him. And if we are to be Christ on earth, then a key part of our role is to accept others. Unconditionally, not based on who they are, what they've done, but based on the fact that we know they've been accepted by God. The third point I put down is this, God perfects us. God does accept us, but he's not content for us to stay as we are. He doesn't say, yeah, you're fine, just that's no problem, let's just stick with that. He looks at us, he accepts us, but he wants us to change. He wants us to become more and more conformed 
to the image of Jesus. He wants to become more and more like Jesus every day of our lives. And it's a gradual and ongoing process. Sometimes it may be accelerated. Sometimes it may edge along. But the idea is that gradually, over time, we become more and more like Jesus in every aspect of our lives. And actually, that is the same for each and every one of us. It's not that there are some people that God looks and says, well, to be honest, that person is pretty much there. There's a few little things where they're pretty much there. And then they'll look at someone else and go, my goodness, there's a lot of work to do here. Because sometimes we can feel, okay, on this scale, I'm right down here and this person's right up there. That's not, I believe, how God looks at us. I believe God looks at us having accepted us and just sees, okay, for this person, the thing they need to work on next, the area they need to grow on next is this. And they prompt them, the Holy Spirit prompts them, and that work begins. But the important thing is this, it's a work that God does, does in each and every one of our lives, but he does it with our consent. It's not something he forces upon us. It's a collaboration, him and us together. And in this psalm, the impetus for this change, for this process of perfection, the impetus is coming from David. This is what David says, verse 23. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David is saying, look at my life, shine the spotlight on my life and see if there's anything in it that you want to change. This isn't a hostile takeover. This is David willingly collaborating. One of my favorite TV programs, um, I've said this before, but it's Dragon's Den. I love Dragon's Den, I don't know why, um, but I do. And, And if you've never seen it, you've got your five dragons, businessmen, kind of sitting next to large piles of money. And then other people come with their businesses, their kind of young fledgling businesses or their inventions. Um, and, you know, they, they talk about their inventions and then the, these five businessmen, they have to choose whether they want to invest in them. And if they do, they make this partnership. And then this process begins where, you know, they, 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 they give their input and their help. And sometimes that can be hard to hear. You know, sometimes they'll be saying, well, this is your business at the moment. You need to cut that bit and get rid of that. And you need to cut that bit and get rid of that. You need to focus on this area here. And the person's like, well, I don't really want to do that. This is really important to me because of my great auntie Susan. You know, then there's all these kind of things going on. They're saying that if you want this business to succeed, this is what you need to do. And there's hard truths and lessons they need to learn. But it's all by collaboration. They've, they've chosen to enter into that relationship and that's true for each and every one of us if we choose to enter into this relationship of being perfected by God we do it in collaboration but there are parts that are difficult there are parts where we say actually I know that in my life I need to develop in this area but I'm finding it difficult or I've I feel like I've been struggling this same area over and over again for years and years you know this has been my new year's resolution now for four years on the trot and it's still top of the list you know there's there's things like that or there's other areas where we thought you know what I know God's kind of on my case in this area, but I just want to leave that. I just want to keep that as it is. And there are those tensions, there are those difficulties, but that is all part of the process. That is the reality of being perfected. We should embrace and welcome that process in our lives. Sometimes there are elements of pain that come along with that. And this slightly chimes in with something similar. Rhiannon was saying last week, she was talking about the need for a faith gap in our lives. That if, you know, if we... There comes a stage when perhaps often when we're younger that we, we do a lot of stuff by faith and our lives get gradually comfortable and it's possible to live by our competence and without a faith gap. And that's a very short summary. Listen to it online if you missed it. But 
in a similar way to something she was saying, actually, sometimes when there is pain that comes in our lives, our tendency, you know, something goes wrong and doesn't go the way we intended, our tendency is to try and make ourselves better, make ourselves feel better by kind of minimizing its impact on us and by saying, well, it wasn't really my fault and, you know, well, you know, this went wrong and I couldn't have helped that and it was just unfortunate and it doesn't really matter that much. And, you know, sometimes we need that. We need to be gentle with ourselves or with someone else. But sometimes we need to actually confront it and say, you know what, this has gone wrong and a lot of the reason that's gone wrong is down to me. I should have done this differently or I should have acted sooner in this instance or I should have thought more carefully about, you know, who I was working with on this or, you know, whatever it is. And sometimes by engaging in that hurt and by saying, okay, what have I done wrong here? What have I got wrong? What can I learn from? How can I move forward, not just strong, but also wiser in this area, can help us being perfected? And that process is important. Now, we need to be careful how we expand this principle. It's, you know, it's fine to say, you know, God created me. God created the world. That's great. And God has accepted me. God has accepted the world. God is perfecting me. God wants to perfect everybody in the world. That's great. But we need to be careful about the part we see ourselves playing in that process of perfection. Sometimes we can be maybe over-enthusiastic being the ones to flag up people's perceived weaknesses, imperfections, and shortfallings. You know, we can say, okay, here's someone, I can, they're getting this wrong, they're getting this wrong, I could tell them to do this differently, I could you know, help them to improve their life in this way, this way, this way. If they just did these 10 things, then they'd be so much better. And sometimes we can get over-enthusiastic, and actually, it isn't our role to force the agenda. Particularly if we don't know people well, that can be really um, insulting or really damaging if we do that um, unwisely particularly if people are unwilling to embark on the process. You know, that change that goes on in lives is principally a work between the person and God, the Holy Spirit acting on somebody's life and helping them to make those decisions for themselves. But of course, the church has a vital role to play and friends coming alongside them have a a vital role as well, supporting, encouraging, helping, but intervening and giving counsel where invited rather than just kind of muscling in and barging in. You know, sometimes if people are too quick to kind of try and force the agenda and try and say, you need to do this, 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 and this without stopping and listening first, it's almost as if they lack confidence in the Holy Spirit to be the one driving that work. You know, if the Holy Spirit is on someone's case and that that person is cooperating with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will flag up the things that are most important for that person to address at that time. And if... The Holy Spirit isn't flagging something up. Perhaps there's a very good reason for that. And actually, we need to cooperate with the Holy Spirit rather than just going with our own agenda. You know, if we want to, the, the, the work of perfection that we can have the greatest impact on is always going to be turning the spotlight in on our own lives and saying, like David said, Lord, search me, know my heart, test me, look for any offensive way in me. If we, if we encourage the Holy Spirit to, to prompt things for us, If we start there, then God can do something remarkable to us and then by extension through us. I'm just going to ask the band to come up and um, just as we start to conclude. If you've never prayed that kind of prayer to God, that honest prayer where you say, God, I'm kind of handing this over to you. you I'm giving you the leadership of my life. You know, search me, look at my heart, know me flag up anything that isn't right. I give you my consent. I give you my permission. If you've never prayed that kind of prayer, 
then I want you to ask yourself this question. You know, God has accepted you. But the question is, have you accepted him? Have you accepted him as the Lord of your life, the one who has the right to speak into your life? Has he, have you accepted him as the leader of your life, the one to, to set the direction that you travel in? And if you haven't, then perhaps this evening is a time when you could do that. What we're going to do, we're going to sing a song in a few minutes, and then at the end of that song, Andrew's going to just lead you in a prayer, which is a prayer of commitment, but also a prayer of opening you up to God and saying, I want my life to be led by you. I want to give you the right to speak into my life and to the best of my ability for me to come in line with what you're saying and what you're speaking over me. You know, God created you. He could insist on putting things right in your life, but he doesn't. That's not the God that's portrayed in the Psalms. The God that's portrayed in the Psalms is a God who stands at the door and knocks, but waits for you to open it. Well, perhaps tonight is the time when you want to open the door. The God in the Psalms is like the father in the parable. He's looking to the horizon, waiting for his son to return home. But it's the son's choice to return home. It's the son's timing. And the father waits anxious and impatiently, but still waiting for the son's timing. How will you respond this evening? How will you respond to God? If that's you and you feel, yeah, that's a step I want to take, you just think about that and think about the decision you're making as we sing this final song together. It is a significant decision, but it is an amazing decision. For the rest of us, I just want us to pray something together um, because I think this, there's so many issues here that perhaps each and every one of us in different ways addresses. Just let's stand together um, as we close this in prayer. For others of us, perhaps... Some of us started this process. You know, we've, we've seen God perfecting areas of our life, but perhaps there's areas where we know we've become kind of hardened or disheartened. We started moving forward and we've kind of got stalled or we've got kind of disheartened in that area and we feel we've got it wrong and we've kind of almost given up. Or maybe there's other places where we knew that God was pushing us or leading us and yet we've just got comfortable where we are. We think, you know what, I just want to stick here and perhaps again we're thinking, no, I need to move forward. I need to address this issue or put this right in my life or again, acknowledge God's leadership and lordship over this area of my life. If there's areas like that, I just want to pray for us this evening that we would again look at our lives. We would again say to God, search me. Look at everything in my life. You know me better than anybody. You know me better than I know myself. You know what's good for me. You know what will bring me closer to you. Help me to, to see that in my own life. Let's pray together. Father God, we are so grateful. We are so grateful, first and foremost, for the precious gift of life. Not just thrown you know, together in a ramshackle, thoughtless way, but you created each and every one of us. You had an intention for us, a purpose for us. We are precious to you. And I thank you that you know each and every one of us, the, the good things, but also the things that we're ashamed of or embarrassed about. You know them all, and yet still you accept us. You accept us unconditionally. You throw your arms open like that, Father. And I pray that each and every one of us would just open up our lives again and say, Lord, examine me. Look at me. See what there is in my life that isn't lining up. And help me again to move forward, to become gradually, bit by bit, one degree of glory to the next. That over my lifetime, I may become increasingly like the image of Christ.
the areas of my life where I've become hardened or discouraged, comfortable, that you would again provoke me and that you'd help me to move forward. You'd help me to grow closer to you, closer to those around me and that I'd be perfected in your image. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing a final song together.